I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Paul Bird, an M&A and private equity partner at Debevoise and Plimpton in New York. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, David, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about your background, how you came to uh, the practice you have and and to do that at Debevoise, an early deal you did for Clayton Dubillier and Rice for Lexmark. And as your career has developed, you've done both M&A and private equity. And we're going to talk about a, a couple of deals. Your work for Aviva Group on its $5 billion deal for OSIsoft earlier this year. And then your work for CDNR, Clayton W. N. Rice, on the white cap and CSG transactions and a little about your work for them generally. And finally, we're going to talk about how you've been staying sane in the era of COVID. So with that, I, I guess, tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to practice law and how you came to specialize in M&A and PE. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. I came to the law not by accident. My father was a lawyer and when I was in college, I knew I'd be headed to law school by my senior year, but I took one year off between college and law school, spent it in Paris, thought I'd be a bartender, wound up a paralegal for Coudère Frere at that time, one of the major international law firms in the early 1980s. And I would say that is where the hook was set for me on an international corporate practice. Upon returning to the States and law school, I had the great opportunity to take what was probably one of the first sort of deal-related courses offered by a law school. Harold Coe was teaching a new course in international business transactions at Yale, and that further set the hook. That just reaffirmed my interest in that type of practice as a potential future career. And so you spent your entire career at Debevoise and you started in New York, but then at some point you went back to practice in their Paris office for a couple of years. Yeah, that's right, David. I clerked for a judge in the Southern District for a year, came to Debevoise so that I could be both a litigator and a corporate attorney. That lasted for about six months. I had an opportunity after two years to go to Paris and that occurred in 1990. The first deal that I worked on was just a marvelous confluence of private equity and cross-border deal-making. CDNR was a leader at the time in divestitures from large corporations, and they approached IBM with a plan to carve out the IBM printer business, which became Lexmark. We worked on that deal for over a year, both London and Paris and New York. There were some 75 countries involved. And notably, it was the first major divestiture by IBM of a division. Of course, they went on to divest many properties over time. But this was a signal achievement for their M&A group and for CDNR in extracting that business and turning it into the public company that became Lexmark. Was there a template at that time for the divestiture? I mean, even today, those are, are very complicated deals because you have to define the assets that are being divested. Did that take more time then, or were there precedent transactions that you could look to? 
There were some precedent transactions, but I would say probably not for a transaction on that scale. I mean, it seems almost quaint to look back and see what the deal value was, about a billion six at the time. But believe it or not, that was a significantly sized deal at that time. We did, of course, have a master acquisition agreement, but because of IBM's size and importance in the principal countries where it was doing business. And when I say 75 countries, 15 you would call principal countries where IBM might have been one of the largest employers in the country. There really wasn't a playbook for that deal. We had to effectively do acquisitions that were to a degree tailored to the specific circumstances of the given country. And just one more question on Lexmark. That deal took place just, I think, a year or two after the famous RJR Nabisco buyout, after which it became impossible for another probably 15 years to conceive of buyouts of that scale. Was it a challenge in the early 90s to pull together and finance even a $1.6 billion buyout? Uh, David, you have a good memory. It's, it certainly was. Those were the early days of the Fed's restrictions on highly leveraged transactions. And there were Fed guidelines in place that restricted the amount of leverage could be made available to affect those transactions. You wound up with a slightly higher percentage of equity going into the deal and a steep hill to climb in convincing the banks this was an opportunity they ought to take up. And so during the course of your career, you you came back to to New York, obviously, where you made partner and and have spent the rest of your career. You've done both M&A and private equity when many of your contemporaries have specialized in one or the other. I assume that was a conscious decision. And how have you tried to balance those two specialties? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think it's partly a vestige of the Debevoise tradition of having broad-gauged lawyers married up with a recognition that specialization was a key to success in the future in, in a Wall Street practice. At Debevoise, we've done it a little differently. We haven't separated private equity lawyers from deal lawyers, from M&A lawyers. We provide core training in both domains for all of our M&A lawyers. And look, we expect the partners in our M&A group to have expertise in both areas. You know, they often say that a good lawyer has to be able to see an issue from both sides of the two principles and and sometimes from several sides. You know, that is what dual training in private equity M&A and corporate M&A, whether it's public or divestitures, provides. And when I look back over the 32 years that I've been involved in the M&A practice at Debovoise, it's really heartening for me to see the degree to which we have developed a young cohort. And by young, I now count that as anybody south of 55 as I approach a birthday uh, in a couple of weeks. But they're all fantastic, almost to a person. They have expertise and experience and clients on both the private equity and the corporate sides of the aisle. And I think that's indispensable for good lawyering, because when you are working for a corporate client and facing a private equity slate, a roster of potential bidders, you know what the issues are. You know how they're going to press on the financing and the cooperation and what the hot buttons are, how they're going to deal with management. And having that familiarity 
can really facilitate a deal in ways that just wouldn't be possible if you couldn't see it through the private equity eyes. Early this year, you advised Aviva, a British software company, it's, it's $5 billion purchase of OSI Soft. Could you tell us a little bit about that transaction? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Interestingly, David, we are finding more and more of our industrial clients focused on the software sector for the expansion and development and next stage of their business. I've been working with Schneider Electric now for over a dozen years, and and probably the first major deal I did for them was almost 10 years ago, buying a, a global software business called Telvin, which was a Spanish company listed in New York. They did software for information management systems applicable to the energy field. Energy has been a transitional sector, I would say, in terms of automation software, process software, and Schneider Electric has been at the forefront of that. Their investment in Aviva from a couple of years ago left them with a 60% stake when Aviva had an opportunity to, on an inbound acquisition into the U.S., acquire OCSoft this past summer. Schneider was very much in favor of that. They introduced me to this new client. And away we went. Uh, It's a nice marriage of an industrial software leader in Aviva and a data management system software leader in OCSoft. I would say the implications for M&A in this sector are manifold. Of course, all the traditional skills are brought to bear, but some new areas of expertise are becoming priorities in our M&A practice in tech and software. And there I'm, I'm really talking about cybersecurity, data privacy. We've got one of the leaders in that field in a former deputy assistant AG for national security in the DOJ, who's effectively become a core member of many of our MA deals that address software targets, because the diligence on that side of the equation is key for understanding risk posed by the business to itself and to the acquirer. And so how deeply do you feel that you have to understand those issues? I mean, can you compare the understanding and expertise you feel that that you need in that area to what you might need in tax, which has always been a discipline that's been integral to any kind of transactional practice? Yeah, I I would say that um, whereas tax uh, has the potential to permeate all aspects of the transaction, transaction from the M&A structuring to the financing to the allocation of equity ownership, what we're talking about here is really primarily risk management uh, on the one hand, but also an ability to respond to the unexpected. But one of the things we've been seeing and talking about in our M&A group is the emergence of ransomware attacks to pending deals. And I think you've probably read a little bit about that. And we've had a couple of occasions over the last 12 months where ransomware actors have tried to disable a target in the midst of merger discussions or acquisition discussions and a crisis ensues. And I can tell you that having the kind of expertise in the cyber area to be able to address that situation is really just key. It it can make the difference between keeping the deal on track and seeing it go off the rails. 
So, so in a sense, this is more like environmental law, but with the added challenge that once you've identified the environmental issues, they're probably not going to change, whereas here, the issues can change very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Following on the trend of industrial businesses focusing on software, we're seeing that in the private equity sector as well. This past summer, one of my partners, Kevin Schmidt, helped CDNR acquire Epicor, an industrial enterprise software business for just under $5 billion from KKR. That also just underscores that buyout firms that you might historically have thought of as being focused on distribution, industrial companies are branching out into one of the sectors that is one of the hottest sectors in M&A, where there's tremendous opportunity. And this Epicor deal uh, really was the reflection of a development of an additional sector focus for this private equity client. And again, there, the team from our DC office on cyber played a critical role. Could you tell us a little bit about the deal you did earlier this year for CDNR, where they bought two companies simultaneously, Whitecap and CSG? Yes, and that's becoming uh, somewhat of a specialty of CDNR, looking at an ability to combine two businesses concurrently. It's reflective of their appetite for complexity, their willingness to accept a challenge, and I'd like to say their faith in their counsel and being able to structure deals like that for them uh, successfully. We've done a couple of precedent deals. Here, Whitecap was a division that HD Supply had announced they were going to spin off. They were going to divide the company in two and affect that through a spin-off transaction. CDNR became introduced to that opportunity. They, of course, were familiar with HD Supply having uh, acquired it with Bain and Carlisle from the Home Depot back in 2007. So they were interested in that opportunity. At the same time, Construction Supply Group, a complementary business, was also on the market, and CDNR effected a dual transaction. Now, the challenges of that are, I would say, threefold. On the M&A side, negotiating two side-by-side agreements. Two, having to deal with the fact that whereas one deal may be conditioned on the other, the other deal may not be. And that was the case that we found with Whitecap. That deal was not conditioned on the closing of the parallel transaction. But we had to contemplate that they might be able to close at the same time. And that means that the financing provisions in the M&A agreement need to sync up both deals. That is, we had commitments from the banks that would have allowed us to fund both deals together. And we had commitments from the banks that would allow us to fund only one deal if it were forced to close early. You can imagine that on the antitrust side, there are similar concerns regarding how you manage the timeline of getting HSR approval for two deals in a complementary business concurrently. That requires coordination among our M&A teams, our finance teams, our antitrust teams, not only on execution of the deal, but I'm talking about during the core negotiation of the merger agreement and the purchase agreement. And I would say, look, that type of experience is easier if you know your partners in your finance and your antitrust teams very well. And of course, at Debevoise, we have a culture rooted in lockstep, which enhances the cooperation between different practice areas and, and different offices. 
and different jurisdictions that it really does, I think, is a key differentiator of our practice, but also allows us to meet these kinds of challenges. And, and how far down do lawyers in a situation like that have to have an awareness of what's going on on the other a transaction? Would even a mid-level associate who's working on, say, the merger agreement on one of those transactions have to have some familiarity with what's going on on the other transaction? And does the importance of that awareness increase as you move up the food chain? David, you sound like you've been on one of these deal teams before. You're absolutely right. We run parallel teams, but they are one team. And contract provisions in one agreement have to match up with and not be inconsistent with the contract provisions in the other. So look, for mid-level associates who are helping us run those purchase agreements uh, right on up to the junior partners, people have a real-time concurrent appreciation of the deal dynamics that are going on in the parallel deals and the degree to which they really have to work together. And so even just thinking about how an individual might work on that transaction, that person probably would at some point have parallel provisions in those two agreements on, at this point, different screens, literally be reading one and then read the other to make sure they line up. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And uh, can affect ancillary agreements as well. It can affect the tax structuring, as you alluded to earlier. And, and the principal focus, of course, is in the financing and the, the antitrust areas. And then finally, obviously, we've all been, well, not totally locked away, but under some form of limited engagement with the rest of the world since March. How have you managed the challenges that's come with that? Well, look, I, I've been hunkered down in northern Westchester since I got back from Los Angeles from meetings in March, and we've all been managing just as well as we can to keep ourselves sane. You know, drinks with the deal is one way uh, to approach it. My wife and I have enjoyed immensely cocktails with the curator, uh, a program that the Frick has been putting on each Friday night, led by the fantastic curators at that wonderful museum. And we've enjoyed that. They pick out one of the gems from that museum and they build a cocktail around it. One that we saw recently was a discussion of Holbein's dueling portraits of Thomas More and and Thomas Cromwell, for which the cocktail appropriately was a Bloody Mary. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so, uh, look, that's one of the things we keep ourselves sane by doing a lot of running and, believe it or not, up in northern Westchester, fishing and similar pursuits. And so when you're finally able to go back to the Frick in person, outside of the two Holbein portraits, what painting are you most looking forward to seeing? Well, look, I would say uh, perhaps not a painting, but a medal. We saw a presentation on Bertoldo's Patsy Conspiracy medal, which depicts a you might call it a a raid or an attack on the Medici brothers in the mid 16th century. It's a, you know, a medal on both sides depicting the attack on the brother who survived and the attack on the brother who didn't. And it's funny that both of these, these references depict scenes of political turmoil and and machination, which certainly we've been living through now for a period of time. So I, I think it may be to both of those that we return when 
were finally <laughs> able to go see the wonderful art of the Frick, albeit at a temporary museum for a period of time. Yes. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Listen, David, it's been my pleasure. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. <laughs>